The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down that packet sniffer and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 167 with guest Pat Hines, recorded live Friday, March 10, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com Also by Code Magazine The leading independent magazine for .NET developers online at www.code-magazine.com And now the man who uses RAID to keep the script kitties away from his honeypot Carl Franklin Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. You're listening to .NET Rocks again. Here we are. Uh, I'm not just me. Richard Campbell, Mr. Vancouver, British Columbia, as he's known, <laughs> in his neighborhood anyway. Uh, you know, you're never a prophet in your hometown. Yeah. So I think around my neighborhood, I'm just that weird guy. Maybe you should move. Hey, you're not supposed to talk till we introduce you. Oh. <laughs> you don't exist. <laughs> Pay no attention to that voice on the telephone, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, include Pat in our banter, though, because Pat is like Mr. .NET Rocks. He's like Mr. Franklin's Net Plot Productions, too. Oh, he yeah. was our first guest on .NET Rocks. He was the first guest on Mondays, the first two that had guests. And, uh, you know, he's like always involved in our, our, new, in, in, our new ventures. Yeah, the, one of the initial co-conspirators. He's a christening kind of guy. He's like a bottle of champagne you whack against the hull of your new project. <laughs> He's also a uh, uh, my co-regional director in New England. Patrick and I make up the regional director team in New England, don't we? Yeah, we do. We work for Tom Robbins in that capacity. We do. You know, uh, it's been a while since we talked about what regional directors are. Maybe we should say that. What are regional directors? Because all three of us are regional directors. All three of us are, yeah. Two, two of us are American, and one belongs to that communist country to the north. So, uh, <laughs> Greenland? Um, so what some, people, <laughs> what some people like to say, what I like to say sometimes, is that a regional director is somebody who actually works for Microsoft but doesn't get paid by them. Yeah, I uh, think that's, that's a good um, description. So we're, 
we're an advocacy not for Microsoft as much as for the developer community to Microsoft. And in fact, uh, as you guys can probably attest in the alias that we maintain with Microsoft, that's, that's confidential. We yell at them more than anything else about you can't do this, you can't do that, or this isn't going to work. And, and, and a lot of times they do listen to us. And sometimes, sometimes they, they yell right back, though. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I and think one of the most famous things uh, in recent history was the discussion around uh, team system licensing. Yep. Which they yelled back, but then they did what we suggested. Yes, yep. they did. They, re- they genuinely, you know, we were taking feedback from our customers on um, them saying, we don't get this, and when we do get this, the price scares us. Yeah. Right. And we brought it to them, and as I recall, pretty loudly. And it was a, a long argument. I mean, we went back and forth a long time, but they really did restructure the pricing. And I think you can probably point to that that special five-seat limited yep. version came out of that whole thing. That's so right. I think we do have an effect out there. Well, we and, and it's going to be a huge effect, too, because that one thing, if you, if you look at it, is going to make a lot of shops actually try it and use it and get addicted to it. Whereas otherwise, I don't think, I don't think we'd see it. You know, um, what, what thing that happens from the regional director program is that uh, we all are uh, in contact with each other constantly. We've been encouraged to put each other's IM addresses in our buddy list. And uh, it's, I remember, you know, several times I've been teaching a class and I had to ask a question and I pull up IM and there's, you know, all the regional directors are in there practically, the ones that uh, that I'm close to anyway. Mm. And just this laundry list of past .NET Rocks guests and people who look at it and like, oh, my God, I can't believe that's your IM list. But um, but what happens is people like will ask a question. IPod? Is that one? Yeah. Well, people will ask us questions because we're close to Microsoft and each other. And typically, it doesn't really matter what our specialty is in. You know, the networking uh, benefit alone is a good reason for you to be in touch with your regional director. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, we do a lot of community questions and answers. There's yeah. a lot of times that the developer evangelist, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Tom Robbins, will forward something on and one of us will answer it. Or And, and the problem is a lot of people don't take us up on that. Like it, when we're at they code don't. camps, there's a lot of people who just won't come up and s- ask a question. Right. And you can ask a question about code and if it's a five-day answer, then we'll talk about consulting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no harm in asking. Um, hey, Pat, before we get started talking about uh, what we want to talk about with you, which is always something interesting, I'm sure. Uh, Richard, you've been booking the guests for .NET Rocks, which I really appreciate, by the way. Well, yeah, you know, we've, we've sort of settled into our roles now, haven't we? It's, yeah. We, after 67 shows, <laughs> I guess <laughs> we should have it figured out by now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been working on the bookings, and if you go on to the .NET Rocks website, .NET Rocks.com, you can see the next month or so of shows coming up, uh, out as far as, I guess at the moment, uh, Tim Huckabee's show uh, coming on uh, .NET Adoption and, and Rocky Lotka is going to talk about the latest CLSA. Cool. .NET Adoption, meaning like worldwide adoption of .NET, because I've heard the numbers are huge. Yeah, yeah well, I, I think the U.S. is stunning. It's, it's, it's incredible. But, you know, Tim is a guy who works all over the world. His company, Internology, is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's working more and more outside of North America and finding lots of momentum. I'm really looking forward to that show. Yeah, it really came one. from a conversation I had with Tim about uh, the work he's doing outside of the country. And I said, you know, I think the listeners would really enjoy to see seeing where that's going and, and what's happening. Plus, Tim's always a gas. You yeah. never know what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, he's right. got great stories. So what else is coming up? Uh, other shows coming up. I talked to Ted Neward just recently, and he's got a very interesting book coming together on project automation. 
So all the tools and tricks and bits and pieces to make your software project automated when you do your builds and things like that. And because he was putting together this book and the story about the way they're doing the book is also an exercise in project automation. So they've got this, they're putting the book into an XML file and it auto updates the entire production process. And they keep doing this iterative cycle until they finally make the physical book. But you can buy the book in sort of a beta mode, get it in a PDF format as it's being worked on. So if this is something really important to you, you'll get to see that. And I just, again, fabulous story. So I thought, well, we got to, Ted, come and talk to us about that. I think we could spend an hour on that as well. Awesome. And you mentioned... A couple of other shows that are up and coming are live shows. We've got uh, Dev Connections. Right. uh, First, second week of April. Yep. And I believe it's Kathleen Dollard's going to be our guest in front of an audience. Uh Uh-huh. And then uh, in May, you've got the conference in the Netherlands, the SDC conference. Yeah, that's going to be fun. I'm not quite sure what all is going to happen there. What I do know is you and me and Mark Miller are going to be in the same building. That's going to be scary. that's always trouble. In the Netherlands. That's right. We're doing it Mondays from there, too. You mentioned Rocky Lotka is going to talk about CSLA.net 2.0, and I didn't want to just gloss over that. We're going to be doing a whole series of uh, shows on DNR TV with Rocky as well. Uh, getting into CSLA.net 2.0. Uh, a lot of people have asked for that, and, and we're we're here to please. Also, Absolutely. And you know, our last guest in the previous show, Joe Duffy, at the end of that show, we really came to the realization that that would make a great DNR TV. There's a guy who knows more about concurrency than anybody else I've ever talked to yeah. at the code level, yep. and he's built tools to fix concurrency problems, to help detect and debug them. And I think seeing those tools in action be really valuable. It's truly going to be awesome. And I also want to mention here that um, this week on DNR TV, we'll be talking with Venkat Subramaniam again, and he's going to talk about generics. And he did a, a, a really cool thing with generics, which is a demo that you actually can wrap your mind around that's not collection-based. Which is <laughs> oh cool yeah it's, it's, you know because so many generics demos always fall back on the same old thing like, yeah give me another example something I'm going to use in in my regular code exactly so you're going to want to look out for that and of course if you haven't checked out Hansel minutes this week um, it's all about testing tools and good stuff Scott's always got great things to say and he'll surprise you with you know a comment that will change and rock your world you know so uh, tune in <laughs> tune into the plop shows is what we're saying. Well, let's talk to Patrick Hines now, Pat, from Critical Sites, your company, a uh, company that you're associated with. What is your role at Critical Sites, anyway, and what do you guys do? Well, so um, <clears throat> Critical Sites is a security consulting company. We're okay. also in the product division um, now, so we're starting to create products that around security to help customers with needs that we found. Mm-hmm. We're releasing some of the first products um, this next month, and we're going to be probably coming out with as many as five this year. Mm-hmm. But we still do quite a lot of security auditing. Uh, we'll go in and help customers figure out <clears throat> what's going on with their network, um, help them with physical security, do code reviews, yeah. that kind of thing. Oh, great. And we also do a little bit of development consulting, but, but mostly around the security side. Because these days, you're trying to build security right into your applications from scratch. That's ideal, since bolting it on afterwards, just nev- it always leaves openings and seams and, and is, is just much more expensive. Well, I, sure. got, I got to say that, you know, the first thing I can think of is business must be booming these days. Yeah, it, it actually is quite a bit. We, we've actually, um, we're turning down business, which is 
a good problem to have, but it's a little bit difficult. There's a lot of people who are in the market now um, who are just getting into it. it. It seems like I get an invitation, one invitation per day for a security seminar from a company that I never knew did security. Yeah. Um, so the, the good news is that there's a lot of people rushing towards the consulting of it. The problem is I'm not sure how, how long they are in experience. Yeah, and uh, you, you've been talking about security on .NET Rocks anyway for, for years. Yeah, it's, uh, basically I got out of the service after the Gulf War, and I, I always had security as the thing that I'm mostly concerned about. The infantry kind of puts you in that mindset. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what have you um, been working on lately, Pat? Um, so a lot on membership. Um, I, I, tied, I, I grabbed onto this membership provider that Microsoft gave us, and I was really happy that they put it into the .NET 2.0. It's not just usable by the web, but, but that's where we see it most. And um, there were a lot of questions. I was in Cairo recently at the Middle East Developers Conference, and the, the number one question I got was, well, when do I need to build my own custom provider? And, and so that was a question that I saw really wasn't answered well. Um, so went in and tried to fig- define where the places are when you need to define your own and, and how you define your own. In fact, Dwayne and I, Dwayne LaFlotte and I, are going to do a mini code camp um, this month, and uh, one of the first the first topic is membership. We're going to show how to build your own custom membership provider. Wow, cool! Isn't it interesting that the first thing that developers want to know about a tool is how can I avoid using this? Yes. <laughs> well, so it turns out there are three big areas where you need to build your own, and and the first one would be when you want to use a schema other than the schema that's provided by you. Okay, they give you a schema. It's pretty much out of the box. You run a little utility, and it builds it for you. Yeah, and it's a and this is a membership schema. This is right. your username, login data, all that kind of good stuff. Well, yeah. it also does salt. It does security questions. It hashes the passwords. There's a lot of things it does. And if you if there's anything you don't want that it does, it's tough. You you probably need to go to a custom provider. On the other hand, they've given you a pretty good repertoire. These are things you ought to want. Right. My biggest concern with people creating their own custom is that they'll They'll create a watered-down, weak, wimpy, insecure version right. that's just not nearly as good as the one that's out of the box. And of well, course, then there's this nasty path here where you say, well, we, all it wants is a username and a password. And then bit by bit, you're going to walk your way back into, gee, I should have used the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you just use a password, then how long is the password? How is the password stored? I mean, you can have the most secure system in the world, and if the password's breached, it's open. It's yeah. just like if you've got a four-digit pin on your security system at the house, if I guess that pin on the first try or you tell it to me through some other means, it you're, you're, doesn't matter how much you spend on that security system I'm in. Yeah, that brings up a good point, which is no matter how great your technology is, if you're using password as your password, chances are you're going to get hacked. <laughs> I, I think right. we can go beyond chances are. <laughs> you've probably already been hacked. What's your, you, I, I know that you guys uh, spend a lot of time diagnosing. You'll come into a system and put on sniffers and, mm-hmm. and put out honeypots and stuff and see how long it takes for people to attempt to hack. How, I mean, how long does it take? I mean, well, so dshield.org has a statistic that says, last time I checked, it was 21 minutes between a system going on the Internet and it being attacked. Wow. Right. Um, That's a public IP address, or does that behind that as well? Um, no, it's any public IP address, but doesn't have to be in a DNS anywhere. Hmm. Um, just put it online. In fact, we've seen customers build a server, throw it on the net to download the updates, and have it hacked before they can download the updates. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's um, the same. I've run in exactly the same issue. You cannot patch fast enough. No, you have to be secure, but before you can patch. Now, speaking of patching, I mean, is just is running Windows Firewall and blocking the ports enough? I mean, well, so it it's a start. Um, so you want to close down any ports that you're not using and and block them with the firewall. That's a good first step, but it's not the only step because you you still got ports open. Um, yeah. If you have any port open, then you need to make sure that what's allowed through there is is checked. So they either you need a, an an IDS uh, intrusion detection system, which is very expensive to implement typically. Yeah. <clears throat> or you need to actually make sure the applications that you're running are secure. Which means if you're running FTP, you have to have like our our standard on FTP is all passwords are greater than 14 characters. Yeah, and turn anonymous FTP off, people. Exactly. That's a <laughs> that would be a good one. Probably um, 21 minutes, probably 22 minutes before you get a a, a collection of uh, <laughs> illegal wares. DVDs. Yeah, exactly. DVDs start piling up on your hard drive. But you know, if you've got FTP services running, you've got IIS running, and you've got all kinds of problems anyway. Yeah. Well, so you could. It depends on whether you shut down the defaults. If you're running 2000, then the default installation was pretty insecure. With 2003, it's pretty secure. But you still need to patch. And your applications are the big weakness. I mean, we've gone into customers Mm. who are absolutely drop-dead fanatical about preventing SQL injection, and we still found SQL injection examples hmm. because somebody built a test page, and it was on a development server that happened to be on the Internet that no one knew about. Oh, right. So it's those back doors that get you. Security is a tough thing because if I go back to my infantry days, I can be secure on 95% of my perimeter and have thought of every scenario but one. But if my enemy thinks of that one scenario on that one weak spot, that's where I'm going to get killed. Yeah. And so the, the hackers have a much less challenging thing. You have to be strong everywhere. They just have to find the one weakness. Are there any right. popular applications out there that are that are causing problems? Well, like, uh, like I'm, you know, there's a lot of popular applications that people are running, like Skype and Instant Messenger and AOL. Are any of those like classic, you know, invitations for getting whacked? It turns out that the most common exploit recently has been session hijacking. Really? So it's, yeah. It's there's a lot of lot going on in that space. Huh. Um, in fact, I, I can't remember the numbers from the open hack, but that was the number one way that people tried to get in. Is Because if I give you a, a, a session ID and it's predictable and it's a high-volume site, then I can in, intuitively guess or, or in fact, in, empirically guess what Richard's will be. Right. And then I can masquerade it. I can set up my cookie to have that session ID and... We're off the race. What are the what does ASP.NET do to generate session IDs? Is it a is it a thirty two bit uh, number, one hundred twenty eight bit quid? What is it? Um, I think it's one hundred twenty eight bit now, but I'm not sure. I haven't dug into the into the things. It, mostly, it's about how you use it and what you store in it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'd hate to go back to an old, you know, the old ancient IIS is IIS four and those kinds of things. Um, the other place that people are looking at is in, is cryptography, as if is how fast are the computers now compared to the cryptography that we're using. Hmm. There's a lot of things that were considered very secure cryptographically that are now no longer in favor because they found, somebody found a way that you can generate two strings that are the same from the hash. Yeah. Um, things of that nature. I, huh. I have a talk that I give at the user groups. I was just in Lansing, Michigan, uh, and gave it on passwords. And we talk about the fact that the length of the password matters, the length of the the length of the key always matters when you're doing this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the hash, the, ha- the two biggest hashes that are used in Windows, the NTLM hash and the LM hash, 
the LM hash isn't really a hash. It's just a trivial concatenation of, of two hashes. Hmm. And it's the, the weakest thing in the world. Your, a wristwatch could probably have the computing power to break it. Is, SH, <laughs> is SHA-1 still considered uh, good? It's still okay, but AES is considered better, and, and there's, there's higher versions of SHA. You said AES? Yeah. Yeah. AES is actually what's built into uh, um, ASP.NET 2.0. Okay. Well, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that by keeping up with the latest tools, they're helping their security story. Because if you, if you look at ASP.NET, even, even the 1.1 version, the, if you used parameterized, stored, you know, parameterized queries and those things, it was easy to do everything right to prevent SQL injection. Hmm. We see that if you use the latest version of IIS, you get higher encryption, you get better treatment uh, generation of session cookies, you get better patching, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah. Everybody freaks out when you get a patch like the JPEG patch that affects new revs as well as back revs of Windows. Right. But you're, there's still a lot of things that could, could attack an NT4 box that can't get into a 2003 box. Yeah. So you are better off with the latest technologies, you are better off with the latest tools, if you don't short-circuit them with stupid practice. Even updates. Um, I worked with a guy who uh, hadn't updated his com- XP computer, you know, in, in like a year and a half. Yeah. And I was like, dude, you were just asking for trouble. He's like, well, you know, but it runs and it's, nothing's going to break. And I'm like, dude. He's got a you, benevolent hacker is what he's got. You are. Yeah, exactly. Someone has hacked you and is cutting you some slack. That's well, actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually a fairly common practice for a hacker to get into a machine yeah. and then patch it. Huh. Be- because they don't want other hackers to get in on the machine and crash it and, and take their stuff. <laughs> and so there are actually servers we saw with Ted patches, and they're like, well, we're not running patches. We specifically don't run patches. Well, this server's fully patched. Hmm. And that's because somebody had built a backdoor that the pa- none of the patches would prevent. Hmm. They'd already, they already established a beachhead. They already had full control. Okay? And now they were just, they were just securing it so that no other hacker got in their way. Hmm. But a lot of hackers won't take down the server. You know the zombie armies you hear about, the denial yeah. of service? Yeah. The spammers? I mean, a lot of organized crime are sending spam. They're sending 90 or 85 emails per machine that they control, mm. but they control 50,000 machines. Mm. And so it's not enough emails to trigger a spam, you know, trigger from right. the ISP, yeah. but it's enough for them to get a million emails out. Right. And so um, <clears throat> they're, not, they're not looking to crash your machine they're looking to control and take, take over your machine. So we're part of the problem. If you don't like spam, if you don't like any, a lot of these things like spyware and adware, then you, we're part of the problem. People who don't patch their machines, people who allow their machines to be taken over, are, are the problem. Hey, Pat, and maybe, Richard, you have some idea about this, too. Hardware firewalls, are they worth it? Um, they're expensive. Hard, hardware is always faster. If you're, I mean... It depends on whether you what you're doing for bandwidth and what you're doing for traffic. Yeah, we use okay. ISA server. I mean, you got to break that down. Hardware firewall is a pretty broad term. Okay, yeah. sure. I don't recommend that anybody in a, with a home system doesn't use a NAT router. Right for yeah. fifty bucks, 
that's a whole lot of default off. You know, yeah. in fact, you virtually cannot patch a Windows machine successfully if it's not behind a NAT router. That's true. Because it's going to get hammered so quickly. I see no purpose at all in this world of having workstations with live IPs. Yeah. So it's that's true. No reason at all. But that and that is the cheapest kind of quote hardware firewall. It's just a NAT router. Yeah. It does it's not smart at all and literally 40 50 dollars there's just no excuse not to have one. Yeah. And I think Pat, you're talking about a much more advanced piece of equipment. Yeah, and I'm talking yeah. about ISPs that get these, you know, 10 and 12 and 15 and up $1000 boxes that nobody knows what they do. They just have, you know, a plug on them. Well, and even the even the PIX 515 is a really nice piece of hardware, and it's but the problem is it's not the cost of the unit is not that much. It's the cost of the configuration. Yeah. You have to have someone who knows how to program the box. Yeah, right. And and that's not a common skill. Um the, uh, if, uh, Cisco is, is a perfect example. They could charge an arm and a leg for the user graphical user interface to to their um, firewalls to their yeah. routers, and and the reason is is because <clears throat> it's you either pay this person a hundred thousand dollars a year to to program it, or you you pay us fifty thousand dollars for the software, or you become certified and hire somebody, or you to buy a Linksys. certified or whatever. <laughs> right? Yeah, you buy a Linksys, right? Um, so I agree with. <laughs> with Richard, as usual, that you're crazy if you don't have a Linksys or a Netgear or something in front of your, your home or even your workstation. But, or you've got to be really on top of things. I'll be honest with you. I do take my notebook and plug it in to the net. I have a, one of those Verizon Air cards. Right. And so I'm on the web, you know, I'm, I'm going through an ISP, but I have no illusions that, that I'm not on, I'm natted somewhere. Yeah. But I don't know who's on that network either. But let's talk about a, a high-volume server situation with one of these big black boxes. I mean, yeah, you know, Richard, you're running ISA server. That's that's something that you can set up on a machine you dedicate, and it becomes essentially the black box, but you you have full control over it. Is There's a benefit to that over over getting one of these boxes that – you know, I, I've heard that, you know, part of the allure of, of getting these, you know – black box firewalls, is that nobody at the company except one guy knows how to get into it. You know, it's like the, there's an obscurity thing there, which I know that you're not a, a big fan of security through obscurity. But well, there, there is that part of it that, that, you know, that ultra secrecy around the protocols and stuff. I, I'll, let me just say one thing about what you just said, which is I am a big fan of security through obscurity as long as it's not the only security. Okay. Yeah. Because I would buy that too. I like the door that looks like a wall, but I want the door to be strong anyway. Yeah. Right. Well, I, my analogy is M1 tanks don't rely on security through, you know, obscurity, but they you don't tell people where they are either. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. Know? You know, they've got a big gun and four feet of armor, but you also hide them in the woods with camouflage. Right. So I like the idea of, of multi layers and, and putting obscurity and, and, and even false information. Right. I, I've I've remapped on web servers the um, the ASPX extension to um, make it look like we're running serverless, huh. so that when somebody sees the page, they think or they think it's PHP. Right. So that I just rename all my extensions; they all still work, they all still do what they need to do. But but somebody coming to my site is going to try to ra- hack the wrong operating system. Well, but all they got to do is look at the you know the the stuff that comes out of IIS to see that it's that's true. Yeah. But it's still another level. It's just of, another. Another uh, 
redirection. Yeah, yeah you know, the, the issue here, Carl, is guys that are out there hacking that are trying to get zombie machines and so forth are working in bulk. You know, right. they're not after you. They're after whoever they can score on. Right. And so anything you can do that just makes them go I don't have somewhere to outrun else. You. I have to outrun the bear. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> I get it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the, it's the old club on the steering wheel thing. If right. somebody really wanted my car, they could get it anyway. Sure. But they don't. But they want the, they want the easiest car, and the one with the club is not the easiest car. Right. Pat, can you tell any stories about... Uh, you know, security incidents from the field without divulging any sensitive oh, information? Probably. I'm, I'm getting quite good at it. One of the problems being a security consultant company is there are very few companies that want us to talk about them and their situation for right. obvious reasons. Right. Um, but, but we see a lot of trends. We see the same thing over and over again. Um, and it's normally the enemy of, my, of security is convenient. Right. The biggest yes. factor that contributes to an insecure environment after ignorance and, and denial, is, well, that would be hard. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to log in. My password's 52 characters long. The reason my password on my network is 52 characters long is I employ hackers yeah. who are very happy to walk up to me and tell me my password. Yeah. And have done it in the past when it was less than 50 <laughs> characters long. Okay. And so I have a very long password, and I've learned how to type it. I use passphrases. And it's something that once you do it, it's, it's actually easier than remembering hacker rules with, you know, substitutions of letters and at signs. And, you know, it's a lot easier to write a sentence. Those are the little things. Uh, for instance, <clears throat> um, I'm a big fan of, of this one tip for your network. I'll give, give all the listeners one tip that I think they should do. Now, a couple of other security experts have said you shouldn't do this because it's a waste of time and it doesn't solve the problem. And you, I'll let people decide themselves. A lot of our security people will say something, and someone else will say, no, I disagree, just so they can get the press time. Yeah, okay. right, right. So, so, and hopefully I'm not doing that. But, <laughs> but a big, I'm a big fan of renaming the administrator account Yes. to something innocuous, not, not to admin, but to the name of a user. Frank. Somebody who you went to high school with who you would quit if they ever got hired. <laughs> 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 you know... <laughs> So that way, if they'll never come to work for you, no matter what. Yeah, it's a, it's a glaring a, reminder that... They're... Follow the same naming conventions and fill out the account as if that person worked there. Okay? Yeah. Because you're also guarding against internal people, too. All right, so now you've got the administrator account has been renamed, and it's got a strong password. Create a new account called administrator. Name it and, and set it up as if it were the real administrator, but don't make it an administrator. Make it a user. Make it a user with no permissions. And in fact, give it, make it a member of a group called admins that has no rights to anything, or okay. specifically deny it rights to everything. Yeah. Okay? So now, audit the hell out of that new administrator account and right. give it a password of 126 characters. Right. Okay? 127 characters is the max. You might as well give them a little bit of a break. Okay? <laughs> and audit it. And guess what? When somebody tries to log in as administrator, what have you found? Yeah. You have an intrusion detection system. You know that somebody's doing some bad things, and you can be proactive. Right. Now, that is a formula for just something you can do, something you can pay attention to. It begs one question, that you're actually willing to check the security logs. Yes. That you're actually willing to check the audits to make sure, which a lot of people aren't. Again, convenience is the enemy of security. Yes. Okay. But, so, you know, you can set up those things to notify you. 
Oh, yeah, there's lots of software out there that'll, you know, aggregate the logs and do rules and things like that. Right. But again, that's work to set up. But, but if you do that one thing, you've now taken the most, the first thing people try to log in as is administrator. They, sure. Because they, you said it before, they try to log in with password or right. blank or God or, you know, what they all, we've got a dictionary. When we do password cracking, we use a dictionary to, to crack again. And we, you know, I think Loft Crack 3 shipped with a 29,000-word dictionary. Yeah. We've accumulated a 5-million-word dictionary. Wow. It's got musical groups and lyrics and, and strange pronunciations and, you know, common passwords. Hmm. So, you know, we might use that to go after it. And the, and the administrator is the, is the golden fruit. If you can get the administrator, you're in. Right. You well, there goes half the battle. Right. Oh, mo- yeah. You, it's, it's over. The only thing better than having the admin password is physical ownership of the server. Now, when you say rename the administrator account, are you presuming that only one account has administrator well, privilege? So, okay, let's go down this road since you've, you've brought it down, and it's an interesting place to be. In a single server environment, there's an administrator that the system starts out with, and you can rename it if you get it when it's young. Right. Once the server's been in service for a year, you need to be very careful about renaming that account because my bet is you have services and other things running as administrator, right. which is a no-no, but again, you don't want to kill yourself trying to make yourself 50% more secure. Correct. Yeah. So This is one of those times where if I've got an old server that I want to start applying those things to, I'll push it into a VPC yeah. and, and then mangle te- it that way. And test it. Right. Yeah, find out what I'm going to break when I change those names. You shouldn't be running any service as the administrator account of the machine. But let's say, let's say we have an environment where the three of us are all administrators on a network. That's a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, just you guys stay away from the keyboard. I'll, be, I'll handle it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, just kidding. But, but how, would, how would you do things? Well, this, this is an example of the things we see with clients. There are some clients out there that follow what we would consider best practice, and I'll go over those in a minute. But there's a lot of clients out there that everyone logs in as administrator. Right, yeah. And they log in as administrator when they're doing email and word processing. Mm. And that's absolutely insane. I mean, it's easy. It's convenient. I can lean over and click. The only thing that makes it a problem is my email address. I might have to map to a different you know, mailbox. But I've seen them do that, too. Mm. On our networks, every administrator gets two accounts an administrator-enabled account, and a user account that they use for user activities. And when they log in as an administrator, they better be doing administrative things or we're going to come and slap them. Right. Now, so this is one area I find that Windows falls down that is so much easier in the Unix world that I could be logged into my regular account and just say, hey, make me ad- upgrade me to administrator. Here's my account. Well, Boom, run up, as now. do my thing, and then drop back down. We have run as now. Well, yeah, you know, we the biggest problem is that software develop. you know, Windows is, an, is a platform that, you know, the market has produced millions of software titles for, billions perhaps. And you, there, everybody, nobody plays by the same rules. So I'll, I'll give you one right now that drives me nuts, Trillion. Yeah. I, I installed Trillion for my daughter because, you know, she's got a friend that uses AOL. She's got a friend that uses Yahoo. I use IM. I don't want AOL on my machine. Right. You know, so I installed Trillion, which, of course, does all these things. The freaking program requires administrator access for you to add a buddy to your buddy list. Yeah. And and here I was trying to, you know, uh, lock down my computer for my kids, you know, making them users. Now I'm doing, now I'm on the phone trying to tell my daughter how to use run as. That's classic bad design. It's crazy. We've, so there's software that we, we a lot of our customers are ISVs. 
and and one of them has running it running services like backup software. Yeah. And they're the only one I know of that doesn't require you to be um, administrator on, as their service running. They have a communications program. It's basically it's NTP software. They make um, quota quota file sentinel UFS, mm-hmm. and they run the communications channel to communicate back and forth. It just has to be a domain user. That service doesn't have to run as, a, as an admin. And it's the only example I know of where a service account like that doesn't have to run as an administrator. Yeah. Oh, that's good. But, I mean, it makes, you know, little stuff like that makes it impossible to, to – I mean, we've had people on the show several times saying, you know, Don Kiley was on, Robert Hurlbut was on, and both were saying, yeah, it's good. Try it. Run as user. But, you know, you run into these little problems that makes certain software unusable. You well, have no choice but to go back. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, sure, you can live off the grid. You don't need electricity. Yeah, you don't need electricity. Um, and, you know, you can generate your own and you can take solar showers. You can't. It's, it's very, definitely possible. But, again, convenience is the enemy of security. A lot of people don't want to live that way. A lot of people don't have, they have a deadline. And the deadline yeah. takes precedence over everything. In fact, I, I think that's the number, the number two cause of of lack of security is is there was a deadline and we couldn't get to it. And, uh, you know, Pat, I'd just like to remind the listeners right now that uh, .NET Rocks is brought to you by sponsors without whom this show would not be possible. If our sponsors decided not to advertise, we wouldn't have a show. So uh, uh, one of those sponsors is Data Dynamics, and they make a product called ActiveReports.net. If you've been listening to the show for a number of years, you probably know about it. But if you haven't seen it in a while, go check it out at datadynamics.com. Uh, it's a great reporting tool. We love it. We use it. And uh, a lot of the regional directors also swear by it. So datadynamics.com. And tell them thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, Pat, uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about administrator security? Yeah, some of the best practices around that, because the notes from the field, I know .NET rocks a lot about security, but if you don't use the system right, you're going to undermine everything. Yeah. Uh, So again, the example that I gave was administrators should have a separate account they use to administer the network and be, be, you know, have that level of rights. Yes. But that also means that if you have an administrator account, Richard has one and I have one, and you do something evil, I have a better chance of tracking you than if everyone logged in as administrator. Hmm. Because now we're logged in as the same user. I can't tell when you, you, know, when you logged in with your password. Right. And it's about auditability. It's about traceability. So, the, I mean, these are little things, but they're slightly inconvenient. You have to train users. One of the things that we do is um, users on our network are required to, you know, when they sign their personnel folder, they're supposed to, you know, can't use, can't go to obscene sites, can't gamble, can't use our uh, phones for illegal activities. You know those standard procedures? So I, I take it you don't have any Mondays listeners there. <laughs> well, we have a separate kiosk computer for them. So, <laughs> but, but we've added to that policy that any password username combination that they use in the office belongs to the company, and they can't use it anywhere else. Mm-hmm under penalty of, of being terminated. Wow. Because Interesting rule. If not so much to, you know, brutally enforce it, but just to make them think, exactly. we want original usernames and passwords here. That's right. And I don't yeah. want my corner hardware store 
to, for you to log in to win a new hammer by giving them your username, your password <laughs> from the network, and then your company email address, because yeah. now they have a recipe for logging in. Right, right. They can find an intranet server. They can find, they can do DNS lookups and find our servers. And now they know a valid login on the network. And if we've architected our network even remotely wrong, they can get in. They can use that to get even higher privilege. At the very least, you should always have a unique email password from everything else. Because oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's an obvious one where you, right. you know. Oh, look, web access or whatever remote access you're using, especially with all the PDAs and everything that are coming out now. Yeah. And, and the other side of it is if, if a big-name website gets hacked, that that database, I'm going to go and I'm going to use every username and password in their database against their, that user mm-hmm. to try to find, if I find somebody who works for franklins.net, I'm going to go to franklins.net. If there's a login, I'm going to try it. And if I get in, I'm going to do whatever damage I can. Right. So it, it, a lot of this is common sense. It's just, it goes against the, the desire of people to take shortcuts. Right. Um, and development's the same way. SQL injection you have to understand what you're doing. It's always easier to just write the SQL statement in the code. Yep. Oh, yeah, I'll get back to it later as a stored procedure, or I'll get the DBA to write a stored procedure for it later, and you don't. Sure. And, you know, you, can, you take data input. With, when it comes to data input, you can't trust anything that the user gives you. And, and one of the things that's a fallacy is trying to prove that something isn't bad. I can't prove you're not bad. I can only prove that you're good in this instance. Right. And so if I go about... I'll give you a great example that I thought was, was very, very evil, but, but it's the way the world works. Um, one company was testing. They had a procedure that ran that would go through and check any input and say, you know, is, is the word delete in, in, in it somewhere? Are they using single quotes anywhere? Are they doing this? Are they doing that? And they would remove that data. Like if they found the word delete, they'd remove it from the string. They wouldn't, huh. uh, they wouldn't abort the procedure, which is what I would do. I mean, that's like saying, oh, you tried to kill me. Okay, don't do that again. Here you go. <laughs> okay. So, but they were actually like removing the, the, string, the offensive strings and then putting them in. Okay, I gave them one scenario that made them change their mind forever, which was I looked at their code, and this is at a time when they were actually, they had their code on the client side, which was really bad because that meant that the hacker could see what they were doing. Right, yeah. But even if they couldn't, Think about that scenario where they remove, they remove single quotes. Well, they remove the word delete. They remove insert. They remove update. They remove single quotes in that order. And now think about somebody typing in D-E-L single quote E-T-E. Oh, uh, yeah. It does a search. You can't find the word delete. It then removes all single quotes. Right. Yeah. They've completed That's, my statement. I was thinking about ra- splitting the word delete with the word delete in the middle of it, having the same effect. Right, exactly. Anytime I've ever done any processing like that in a string to look for stuff yeah. and remove, I've always done it in a loop. And yeah, you can, do it, you can do it iteratively. Yeah. But, again, you're, you're trying to fight an uphill battle. Yeah, no, I agree. Right. I agree. It's not, the right, right. it's not the right thing to do. The right way to do it is to say, you know what? I expect a four-digit number. Is this a four-digit number? No? Okay, go Goodbye. away. Yep. yep. And, and Thanks should, for playing. You should literally punish the user if they if they continuously try to get the wrong information. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> the problem I was always is, a big believer in the three strikes you're out rule, yeah. but I don't tell you you're out. But you know well, what? You, nobody uses that. Well, you got to be careful with that. If you're talking about account walkout, which I think is where you're going with this, yeah. There's a new trend that the new thinking. It's not that new, but but everyone I tell about it is surprised, so I think it's new. Um, the new thinking in this regard is 
we want to be careful of, of, of being able to let a denial of service come in through your lockout strategy. If I know that all, if I know the names of all your users and your naming strategy is oh, first right. initial last name, I can just try to log in 10 times as each user and every five minutes right. and lock them all out. Here's what we recommend. Hmm. We recommend instead that you have extra information about the user that you keep on file. Okay? And when they've tried to log in three times or done whatever it is three times and, and have been unsuccessful, you add more information that's required for them to get to the next step. Huh, right. So username, password, and what date did you start again? Yeah. What's your mother's maiden name? And right. what will happen is if you get to the point where eventually you're asking them ten questions just for them to log in, the next time the real user tries to log in, what are they going to do? They're going to complain bitterly. They're going to complain bitterly, and now you have a human alert. Right. The human's mm. going to say, dude, I know all this info. Why are you asking me this? Right. Now, maybe I can go reset it, and hopefully you're not being socially engineered for ten more bites of the apple. But it's a way to prevent denial of service while getting your users involved in notifying you. Hey, any chance that that membership library from Microsoft does that? So, no, I'm thinking about writing something that does that. But what it does do is it does contain information like security questions right. in the database already in the schema. And so what you can do is you can, you can add that stuff in. You can, you can set it up. Um, I'm actually thinking about developing something along those lines for our own use. Um, but it's not that hard to implement. It, it takes more time than implementing the three strikes you're out rule. But think about unlocking, think about denial of service. Denial of service is the, the revenge of somebody who wants to stop you from being secure. Right. You know, if I, log, you know, if I, every, I can write a program that every five minutes tries to log in as everyone ten times and locks everybody out. doesn't matter how many times you'd have to rewrite the system or, or comment out the code and recompile to get it to work. It's a pretty good solution you have there. Yeah. 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 So, and that's because we've dealt with a lot of customers who gave us this problem and said, no, we can't do this because of denial of service. And, and so we came, I mean, I'm, I don't think we invented it, but I haven't read it anywhere. I haven't seen it anywhere, and I don't know of anybody talking about it. You know, it um, seems like a lot of security applications is, is less about technology and more about common sense and application of existing technology. And paranoia. In smart ways. Yeah, paranoia, of course. That goes without saying. So, you know, gun ownership <laughs> helps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a healthy chunk of social engineering, there's certainly policy around making security work. Right. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot about that. And it's about, I mean, one of the things that helps is having people who've actually been hackers have you guys seen the Code Room? You ever seen that show, the Code oh, yeah. Room? Yeah. As a matter of fact, you guys are, were a part of that. This Dwayne Laflotte was uh, who, weeks. our CTO now. He was the he was running our security practice. He's still very heavily involved, but he's moved up to CTO. Is um, one of the hackers. They got him and Caleb Sima and and a bunch of guys. Keith Brown was one of the good guys, um, and they basically had the three bad guys. Dwayne being one of them, hack a casino, and then the good guys try to catch him. And it was very well done. It's a nice video. It's up on thecoderoom.com um, slash Vegas. And, uh, but the thing about it is there aren't that many people who actually hack for a living that you can talk to about. <laughs> right. I mean, and they, there's often challenges around this, the whole white hat, black hat thing, putting machines out there and saying, go ahead, try and hack this machine. Right. Just to see if you can make it robust enough. Right. So there aren't that many companies that offer. I mean, IBM's had the ethical hacking unit for years and years. Right. And they were the first company that I know that did it. But, but as far as I know, we were among the second or third to do it. 
So it, there's just not a lot of people with a lot of experience with it that are not kids in high school. And does it make sense if you're going to set up a secure system to attempt to hack it? Is there any other better way to test the uh, strength of the protection? Well, so it's t- kind of like pre- kind of like proofreading your own document. If you have the developers and the engineers who built the system test it, they're not going to admit they're not going to catch the things they don't think about. No, of course, of course, if they would have thought of them, they would have protected from right. them. Right, and so it, you can go a little further by getting peer testing from outside the. You know, from further away in the organization, but we do find that an external audit is much more likely to reveal what you haven't thought of. Right. I'll give you another example of something that no one seems to think of, and it's a question that I don't necessarily think everyone has to have um, a satisfactory answer for, but they, they should at least confront it. When you do disaster recovery, we always talk in disaster recovery about um, the, the, the facilities, the data, and retrieving all that. Right. But, but one of the things that we've learned is what happens if we lose the facilities and, and a very large percentage of the people who work in the facility? Now, that's a you very know, un- think of the 9-11 question. scenario. Right. right. It's a very unpleasant question, especially with a company with less than 1,000 people because right. this is family we're talking about. And this is yeah. why companies have such strict you know, policies about usage you know, because right. of intellectual property is, could be gone tomorrow. Right. So... A lot of companies, especially the smaller ones I've, I've done audits with, just haven't confronted that question. And it's a, it's a delicate question. It's one that we don't typically ask when there's a lot of people in the room. We typically try to get the principals in and say, would you continue? And sometimes we get, oh, absolutely, we need to put a plan together. We're going to have a, we need to, like, know where we'd get our people. And others, it's like, no, this is family. If that happened, we would That's just, the end of it, yeah. We just close. In- this is no different from the whole life insurance question that you get into with board members and senior partners and so forth. It was, how will we function without you? Right. Yeah. You know, it, 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 these things happen. It's not just the disasters. It's the serious illnesses. There's all kinds of things that happen there. And if you're right. going to go to the trouble of taking out an insurance policy for someone, certainly you ought to be able to plan around their absence. Right. Well, you have to, because if you don't, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the thing that happens. Right. You well, know, whatever you don't plan for, Murphy, you know, my mother's maiden name was Murphy. <laughs> and I don't use that as a security question anywhere because it's too common. That's actually um, an interesting spin. I, I've actually used that in a group. I says, you understand if we don't deal with this, we're basically painting a big sign on us for the gods of irony and pain to say, <laughs> hit me here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't even know, I don't know what religion that's from. but <laughs> <laughs> That's the Mark Miller school of religion, actually. <laughs> well, uh, Pat, um, what do you think of... What do you think of smart cards and RFID tags and, you know, putting really high-bit encrypted keys and stuff on these electronic things and using them instead of passwords that can then propagate throughout systems? Is this, is this where we're ultimately heading? I mean, it seems like there are very few bright lights on the horizon in terms of technology to help us. I like proof-of-ownership items as an augmentation to password. I think we still need to work on the level of some some data has to come from the user. Otherwise, I'll just steal your wallet and take your smart card. Yeah, right. Um, I want a combination. Smart cards are very expensive to implement. Microsoft yeah. uses them for their internal network, and it's a very secure system. Yeah. But it's also very expensive. Yeah. Um, better passwords would be a real good start. Um, I mean, a huge start. Because if you've got a nice long password, I'm talking over 14 characters, then it becomes very difficult to, to change it. One of the things I might recommend in a, in a group, um, in a company, is 
if you have people with really long passwords, if they can get their hands around a passphrase that's 40 characters or more, yeah. don't make them change their password every three or days. Right. Maybe, maybe let them change their password once a year. Right. Okay? Because, to be honest with you, it's going to take more than a year to hack that 40-character password, and it's going to take less than 30 days to hack that five-character password, or, or even eight- or nine-character password. Pat, are we safe just changing L's and I's to one and O no. to zero? Well, if it's a 40-character password, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, right. but you're not, because the entropy of the, um, the crackers are going to catch that. Right. They're, they're, take a look at the LM hash. The LM hash is that one that I, I dis, that Microsoft has built in for backward compatibility in yeah. Windows. Uh, it's turned on by default on NT3, uh, NT, uh, Windows 2003. Yeah. It's, it's on. That means if your password is less than 14 char- 15 characters, yeah. an LM hash will be generated. And in, on my desktop computer, which isn't that powerful, I can do 5 million um, hashes a second. Okay. Okay? It's, not, it's an old Dell. It's about a year old, maybe a year and a half. Five million a second is the time that it, it, is its average time for cracking. I, can, I only need to go through 17.5 billion passwords to hash every possible combination of an LM hash. Hmm. I can do that in, um, in, uh, less than half a, in about a half a month. Huh. So at that rate, um, unless you're changing your password every two weeks, I'm going to get it if I get the hash. And I can get the hash by doing packet sniffing. It's not trivial, it's not simple, but it's possible. Yeah. And security is like life insurance. You can buy as much as you want and you'll never get enough. You'll never get all of it. Here's something that you also might be, uh, not be aware of, but let's say you work in a building where you have uh, a, a central email server, right? Yeah. And somebody on your system is sending you something else within your system. In other words, you have... Somebody, two people are emailing themselves behind the firewall. Yep. Do they have to worry about, you know, uh, sending passwords, credit card numbers, and encrypting those things? I would. Yeah, because, I, because there are other people inside the firewall that may be unscrupulously uh, sniffing? It depends on what kind of environment you're in. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about 10 people and you know that some of them aren't technically capable of, most of them aren't technically capable, and you trust the ones who are, well, the ones who are could just open up your inbox anyways, then you, you really have to assess that risk on an individual basis. So I, I hate to say it, but the, the answer is it depends. I live in New Hampshire. Yeah. I have three big dogs, and I have guns. Yeah. No one's coming in that house. Even, the guns aren't even assembled. But I don't worry about those because the dogs are going to stop anybody. Right. You know, it's, it's, a, it's about where you want to place your risk, what you're willing to do, and how you're going to deal with each threat. And we, we decide this every day. You walk through a rough neighborhood, you, you know, check where your wallet is, you might move it to your front pocket, you might, you know, you might carry um, something with you, you might have a, 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 an umbrella that you have ready. Just in, you know what to do for security purposes in that situation. Yeah. If the Manson family descends on you, it's none of it's going to matter. <laughs> okay? But you've assessed the risk of that as being low. Right. You don't have bulletproof glass in your car, I bet. Well, you know, you live in New Hampshire, you have guns. I live in Connecticut, and we have tasers. Tasers? Oh, no, very no, no, good. I'm just kidding. Well, I have a paintball gun, too. <laughs> if somebody breaks in my house, I'm going to use a paintball gun. Yes, we have stun guns here, because we want to be humane. <laughs> yeah, you've been stunned by stun <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I'd rather be shot. I'm just kidding. Um, but, 
security is such an interesting topic, and you're just never done. You get to decide how much risk you want. You get to adopt that and have your resume ready. That's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's a balance. It's a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off in this. And, and that's the good thing about it. That's one of the things that attracts me to it is because you, we're not going to get – we're going to get to a point where the technology is set up where I can speak into a microphone and it'll build the application I want before we get to the point where it'll secure the application I want. You know, I personally hope, and I know that, you know, people are going to take me to task here, especially in my town if I said this out loud. Oh, my God. But uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a hoper, uh, but uh, I hope that, you know, in the future we can have uh, RFID tags as, as national identification uh, units, which can, you know, authorize things and, and identify us, sort of like what Microsoft tried to do with Passport, but but, you know, with a piece of hardware, there's just so many things that can be made easier, you know, when that, when that so, happens. So that I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to reveal something very bad about myself. I watch CSI Miami occasionally. Yeah, I don't watch those shows. Maybe that's why I'm so bullish on this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there was one show, and I don't know whether it's, it's bogus or not, because I've never heard of it since then, where they had a, a young girl killed at a nightclub, and she didn't have a purse. And they're like, well... Her purse is missing, and then they did an X-ray, and they found a little right under the clavicle. They found a little piece of metal, and what it was, they said, was a credit card scannable subcutaneous implant. Yeah, and so you could go into the club, they'd scan right under the right under your um, collarbone, mm. and it would scan in your credit card information and pay for your drinks that way. Yeah, so she didn't have to carry a purse. Yeah. Now, to some extent, that that sounds like an interesting idea. But I don't want people mugging me with a knife. And then How about the fact that I don't want anything under my skin? Jesus, yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's start there. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, but a tag, uh, you know, uh, something that you wear around your neck, something you wear on your finger, you know, a ring, something that is not easily uh, transferable from one person to another. Well, um, so, you know, those, you know those credit cards, the speed, the passes yeah, that you Yeah, speed just pass, wave? right, RFID stuff. You yeah. like those, right? I don't have one, but I use, I, I use a similar thing for my car, yeah. How, how hard do you think it would be? And, and Dwayne and I were actually looking into this with a couple of guys from our operation. And so I'm giving away something here, but it's not a big deal. Yeah. If I had a backpack on with a notebook computer in it, running, closed, and I had a scanner in my pocket and I bumped up against you and you had that in your pocket, what do you think the odds are I can read it? Uh, that you can read it? Probably, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I, we don't know yet either, but we're thinking about finding out. Yeah. The thing about it is, if if it's easy, it's probably not secure. Yeah. And and so I know where you're going. You want easy, and I don't blame you because you're human. But easy usually, I'm very cautious of easy. I don't do online banking. Well, I like the fa- yeah. I don't either. I like the fact that uh, you have to supplement that with a password. I mean, that's right. That's a good thing. Well, do you? But the new ones, I don't think you do. No, no, no. I mean, I like your your. Right. Your requirement. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the human has to play a role, and the human has to be educated. I, I guess yes. one of the places that we need to go is training. Yeah. There needs to be more training for developers and more training for the average user. Yeah. I know everyone, every company I go to, the receptionist, the, the clerk, the accountant, all of them would be happy to learn how to not be socially engineered, how to not get pulled in for viruses and spyware on their computer at home. And at the same time, I could teach them how to not be... Socially engineered work. You know what? To... You know as well as I do that, you know, for the people who are technically savvy, maybe 
They'll listen. For everyone else, there's no freaking way they're going to retain anything, understand anything. There's no way. There's no way they're going to set aside time to learn about it when they don't care. Well, but how many – okay, I could ask you both this then. How many people have brought you a computer that no longer works because it's infected with so much spyware and viruses? Well, you know that's a easy one. Lots. That's true, but people I, don't I, do it. And people don't care about it until after they've been hacked. Well, right, but then they for the next computer. There, I spend one night every weekend decontaminating some computer from someone on my daughter's soccer team. Right, and that's that's just so I can keep up with what's going on. Right, um, and you know they're all shocked that I want to, that I'm willing to do it for free. But it's like, don't worry, you're, you're going to teach me plenty yeah. just by yeah. looking at this. I think the personal best was two thousand two hundred. Um, spyware programs on one Oh my computer. god! My niece holds that record. Very proud <laughs> of her. Um, but it's we need to try. I mean, it's like saying we can't teach programmers about SQL injection. We should just give up. I don't think we should give up. I think well, we need yeah, to get I'm, better. I guess training. I'm not talking about programmers. I'm talking about end Mortals. users. I mean, I'm talking about end users who are who need to be authenticated, who need to be authorized, and you know, who are going to choose their cat's name as their as their password. You know, and you I, can't tell them to you can't tell them to put in a 40-word password. They can barely remember the 5-word one. One of the things you know? that I I'll probably get shot over this one too. One of the things that I think is a shame is that passport has fallen out of vogue. Yeah, because as as much as people were paranoid about well, you know, Microsoft and Passport, and they're going to own the keys to the kingdom, it it really does help to have one password and one you know high end data center. I don't know of any big hacks against Passport. Do you? Right. We'd certainly know about them. And the univer- the whole concept of the universal sign on. Right. And if you got that to work, that one thing would solve a big part of the problem because the well, problem isn't yeah. as much that they, they can't remember a single password and they can't use it correctly. It's that they can't remember 55 passwords. Well, if I could play devil's advocate for a minute. Sure. Um, the, the You know, a, a little while ago you said that we don't want to have uh, people using passwords on more than one computer. And not only that, but doesn't, you know, using passport for everything give you a single point of hackability? I mean, God forbid if it was hacked, you would be completely... That's true, but I, I guess I guess it's the the risk we take. Yeah. We got to decide on which risk we want. We've got a system that's provably not working. Having yeah. people try to remember fifty different passwords just right. doesn't work. And you know the difference with the passport scenario is that the username and password is stored only in one place. Right, it's, and it's used it's a, in fifty places, but it's only processed and entered in one place. That's well, true. And, and Microsoft doesn't share that password with anybody. Right, they don't send your password anywhere. And to be honest with you, I would like the person guarding my my password to be the one with the most to lose in the deepest pocket. Yeah, yes. I suppose you're right. And Microsoft's probably the best qualification there. It, it's a shame it didn't do better. It's, I think it's not even publicly available now. Not anymore, no. They've, they've taken away the SDK, and it's only for internal Microsoft use now. Well, Expedia still uses it. Really? Yeah, I sign on Expedia with Passport. I did it today. I booked flights um, to Frankfurt today. Well, Expedia is a Microsoft uh, site, so... Well, but, yeah, they're not a Microsoft property, though. Well, yeah, but they... They're, they're an existing client. Basically, I don't think you can become a new client of Passport. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and there's really no uh, public availability of the SDK and things. Something has to jump in here. I don't... If this were the dot-com boom still, then we'd have five of them to choose from. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we need something in this space, and they're... You know, it's a big... 
cost. Microsoft spent a lot of money on it. It would have worked. Password would have worked had it not been for the timeliness or the unfortunate timeliness of, of you know, the IE hacks that right. came out right at that time when they were putting it all together. Yeah, I think if they were doing MSN now, uh, doing Passport now, they'd have more success because they've gone through a lot of pain yes, they in have. making those security work. But also, I think adoption of the web and then the whole issue of multiple sign-on has become much more prevalent in people's minds. Yeah. Were either of you at the Hailstorm event, the, non- the NDA event Microsoft had when they talked about Hailstorm? Yes. And were you at that? Yes. It was pretty... Even for a room full of people, Microsoft invited, many of them were partners of Microsoft. There was a lot of gut-wrenching fear of Microsoft having that kind of power. And I think it was unfounded. Well, it was also, it wasn't just the password that they were going to store. They were talking about storing everything that you put in Outlook. And that's true. And that maybe was the problem, is they overreached. If they just kept it with Passport, then maybe it would be... Ubiquitous. Or, or just to say, you know, it's up to you what you want to store in there. You don't have, nobody's saying you have to give us your credit card. Nobody's saying you have to, you know, and, the, and that was always the case. But, you know, people would just say, Microsoft wants to keep my credit card. Uh, screw that. You know, especially right. with all these. You know, the funny part is out. since that time, and Hailstorm obviously didn't go anywhere, look at products like Plaxo right. and Gmail for crying out loud. Right. People putting, they're taking their entire email catalog, every email they've ever saved, and sending it to Google. Yeah, I don't like that. No, it's amazing <laughs> that, that people do it. Well, yeah. people do crazy things all the time. It's just, <laughs> sure. Because searching's more important to me than security. Yeah. Well, look at, there was a lot of talk about privacy and, and um, personalization, all, all that stuff. And at the same time there was all that outcry, click once became the number one, a click, one click buy. On eBay, right? Well, was eBay, Amazon, Amazon became yeah, the Amazon. number one feature on the web because again, people wanted convenience over security. People want convenience over privacy. Yeah, right. Um, I will always bet on convenience and and ease of use over security. Hmm. If I if I look for a hack, I'm going to look for what would be easier for the developer to do. What's so the so naturally, then Pat, you can't argue with the fact that the security measures that we have to look at have to have to come closer to the to the user's expectations, which is convenient. Right. We've got I to find a way, ultimately, to make the most secure option also the most convenient option. No, I, I agree with you. I just think that it's going to have to include education yeah. to show them what's at stake. Because the right most, now, convenient especially. Thing, most convenient thing for me to do is to not lock my house or my car or my doors. Yeah. If I move to New York City... Not to pick on New York City, but if I move to New York City, that's not an option like it is in New Hampshire. Right. Okay. In New Hampshire, I get a I get a hundred pound Doberman. You can come in the door. <laughs> You'll be lucky to get out. Okay. That's not the issue. That's not the getting out is getting in is not the issue. Getting out is, but it's a matter of you you make these assessments. I would rather not pay for locking doors. They're cheaper yeah. if I don't have locks. I would rather not feed the dogs. Yeah. I mean, I don't keep the dogs. Uh, and of course, I'm talking. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about the future. Right. I'm talking about where, you know, where ultimately things are going. And I, 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 I while I, education is absolutely critical today. Right. Critical, and and it, it bugs the hell out of me that more people aren't that they just don't care. Well, you know, like my like my friend who they care about thinks it, my, my friend who thinks it's more secure to to not do online updates, automatic updates. Why? You know, because his computer works. 
Does you know he what I mean? think that because he doesn't go to the doctor to get a cancer? Well, he just scan, doesn't know. I mean, it's education. Until I or somebody else told him, look, you're crazy. If you do that, you're well, playing Russian roulette. But there are people who believe that if they, they're better, you know, if they go to the doctor, they're just going to get bad news, so they're not going to go get the cancer scan. Right. Because that'll just get them cancer. Yeah. There's some of that. Some of that is in fact. Well, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. If you take a photograph of me, you steal my soul. <laughs> yeah, that's what they believed originally. Um, security is a, is a journey. Yeah. Okay. It's and the problem is, no one wants to pay the fare. There's nobody getting bonuses for writing the most secure website. There's people getting fired for writing the least secure website. Pat, that's a great story. Uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up, but first, okay. I want to ask you. Uh, What's the coolest thing that you've uh, seen online, downloaded, looked at, toys, anything? Um, Utilities? So we're experimenting with a new phone. Um, it's a Samsung, I think, 810. It's CDMA and GSM and Windows Mobile. Ooh, cool. And um, I've got, I require the CDMA for the coverage in New England and New York. I require the GSM because I travel quite a bit. About you know Every other month I'm out of the country for at least a week. So that effectively means it has two phone numbers. No. It's callable on GSM network um, without changing phone numbers. You know, this is the next, uh, the next uh, one after the one I have. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm carrying currently the Samsung A795, which is not a smartphone. Yeah. But it's CDMA, GSM. Um, and Bruce Baca, who's you know, my partner and longtime mentor, he got the new one. And I can't remember. I think it's the 810. My yeah. biggest concern with these kinds of, of very powerful phones is the battery life. Yeah, right. I'm living on, I can do five days with this, new, with this um, 795, and I'm, I just can't get tied to a charger every day. Yeah. So I'm probably going to stick with what I got for a little while, but, but that's the latest and greatest. And, and we're looking at, the, with Exchange Service Pack 2, Exchange 2003, we're looking at um, being able to actually use an Outlook client rather than just a, a web client. And that's the E810? I think it's the 810. Okay. I may be wrong. Pat, you have a code camp coming up, don't you? We have a couple of code camps. There's the one in May, mm-hmm. which is the 5th, which I hope I think you're there too. Yeah. And there's a mini code camp on security that Dwayne and I are doing. Um, March 25th, I believe, is the date. By the way, Dwayne LaFlotte, if you have not seen him speak, go see him. He's brilliant. He's funny. And, and I can't. Uh, and he's brilliant. Just draw your conclusions <laughs> from the, the Vegas code room. That was it, that was a pretty good video, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're going to co-present pretty much all four sessions. We're doing membership, best practices, what's new, a um, whole bunch of stuff, and uh, it should be a fun day. Good. And with that, we're going to wrap up another episode of .NET Rocks. Thanks, Thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me. And we'll have you again, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. 
Dotnet Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a time boy. Life is hard.